Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to a special five-part podcast series I recently did with John Gill, the Vice President of Education at the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, the ACFE. In this five-part series, we take a look at five different fraudsters looking at the frauds they engaged in, how they were able to do so, and what led them to getting caught. We use this as an exploration for the compliance practitioner and the fraud examiner to detect and prevent fraud in their organizations. We take a look at Nathan Mueller and the Fraud Triangle, Mark Whitaker, Tone at the Top, Andrea Baxendale, Unfair Treatment Can Increase Risk, James Brandolino, Doing Your Due Diligence, and James Gromazek, What is an Insider Trading Crime? It's a fascinating exploration of fraudsters and, more importantly, the lessons that you can learn from them. John Gill has a wide and lengthy history with the ACFE and in education. I know you will find this special series worthwhile. This special five-part podcast series on fraudsters is a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode with John Gill, Vice President of Education at the ACFE, on our exploration of fraudsters. Today, we're going to take up the fascinating case of Mark Whitaker. John, uh, welcome back, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Well, Tom, thank you for having me back. Uh, as I and mentioned, one of the things... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I'm looking forward to uh, to talking about Mark Whitaker, so why don't you tell us about him? Okay. Well, as I mentioned in the last podcast, one of the things that the ACP likes to do is interview fraudsters. And so I, I took that over and uh, always am fascinating with what I learned. One of my other favorite fraudsters I've interviewed is uh, Mark Whitaker. So Mark's actually probably one of the more famous people I've interviewed. They actually made a movie about his case. So if uh, you have, I think it's on either Netflix or Amazon Prime, uh, you can watch The Informant uh, with uh, Matt Damon starring as, as Mark Whitaker, although I'll have to tell you they, they bear no resemblance in real life. But it's a fascinating case, uh, and, I, and I do recommend the movie, uh, if accurate. It, it, it seems bizarre when you, when you watch it. It's kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek uh, telling of it, but it, it is actually absolutely true. So I met Mark at a legal seminar in Chicago several years ago, and uh, introduced myself and asked me if he would sit down and do an a interview with me sometime. And it was uh, kind enough to do that. And so I, we we went through his whole case, and I thought it was, was really uh, interesting. And when I think of Mark, my, my main thing I always think about is tone at the top. And it was really an illustration of how people take their signals from the, the, the top of the company. So Mark was a, has a Ph.D. in biochemistry. He's, he's very smart, but he was on the scientific end. And, but he did so well, and he worked well with people, and, and he worked for uh, Arthur Daniels Midland, ADM. And the higher-ups at ADM, and this was back in the uh, uh, 80s, and they really were impressed with him, and so they promoted him to a vice presidency. And so when they were uh, talking to him about this, I said, well, Mark, as, as an executive now, one of your new responsibilities is to take over the price fixing for these chemicals. And uh, one was lysine, and then there were several others. 
So there were uh, food additives, but they were used primarily in manufacturing sodas. And so uh, ADM was one of the, the producers, and there were several Japanese companies, uh, and I think one from, from uh, another Asian country. So what they were doing is they would get together every few months, and they would decide how much are they going to charge for these chemicals, because they were the only companies that made them, and they were used all over the world at manufacturing sodas. And, and I've been lucky enough to travel a lot all over the globe, and I can tell you that's one thing that is absolutely uh, consistent across the planet. People drink a lot of soda. It's uh, everywhere. It's uh, everywhere I've ever been. And so the, the justification for ADM was that well, it only increases the can of soda just a fraction of a cent. And they told Mark, it's like, hey, it's not a big deal. You know, the average person does not care if they pay a fraction of a cent more for a can of soda. But when you multiply that times the cans of soda all over the world, they were taking in something like $150 million a month just from the increase in price through this price fixing. So I was asking Mark about, well, what did he think about that? And he said, well, I'm young compared to these guys. He said, I'm in my 30s, and uh, uh, Mick Andreas and his father were had, had been running the company, and, and Mr. The, Dwayne Andreas the, uh, had been uh, was in his 70s and had was very respected in business. And, and so Mark thought, well, I guess this is how it works. He said, I'm, I'm new to, to running, I'm new to executive management and I don't have any experience here. But if they say that this is okay and everybody does it and this is the way business works, then I guess it's okay. And so that's what he's, he uh, started doing. He started going around and, and he would have these uh, secret meetings with companies to, to do the price fixing. But at the same time, he, uh, his wife, uh, his, her name is Ginger, and uh, I've met her. She's a very nice lady. She thought something was wrong. Mark was, you know, uh, having all these secret meetings, and he would just fly off in a moment's notice, and he seemed, you know, preoccupied. So she asked him what was going on, and he explained about the price fixing. And so she said, well, isn't that illegal? And he said, well, technically, but... It only raises a can of soda fraction of a cent. She said, but it's still illegal. This is not the type of person you are. If you don't turn yourself in, I will. So she, so he, at her urging, called the FBI. And Agent Brian Shepard came and met with him. And, and Mark agreed to, uh, agreed to wear a wire and, and do video recording and record the information about the price fixing. So he did, and he, he wore a wire for about two and a half years. And so there's some, some funny episodes that are in the movie about, you know, the uh, tape recorder clicking in the middle of, of some of these meetings or trying to arrange the camera that was in a lamp to record the different things. And so it it started to make him kind of crazy, I think. And, and you can imagine if you're trying to wear a wire at work every day for two years, what kind of pressure that would put on you. But eventually they had enough information, and they said they were ready to prosecute so as, um, as the prosecution is getting going with the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, there in Illinois, they, uh, the prosecution team gets a call from ADM's lawyers, and they say, hey, we have a surprise for you. Your star witness, Mark Whitaker, he's been stealing from the company. And they're like, that can't be right. I mean, this guy is, is the informant. He's the whistleblower. He came forward on this price fixing. 
he couldn't have been stealing from ADM at this same time. So they bring Mark in and they say, Mark, tell us this is not true. And he said, well, I can because it is. I have been stealing money from the company while he was also cooperating with the FBI. And so Mark uh, stole about $9.5 million uh, over the course of this. And so I thought that was so odd and so strange, but it was true. Now, he did uh, cooperate with the government, and and ADM uh, was prosecuted. They're under new management now. All those people are gone, and he helped the the government, but the government did prosecute him for embezzlement, and so he served, uh, uh, I think, about eight years in, in jail for that. So I was you know, knowing that story, and when I met him, and I had the opportunity to sit him down, because of the the burning question in my mind was, well, what were you thinking? What were you thinking that you were stealing money at the same time that you were cooperating with the FBI? And so he he explained it. He said, well, here's what I was thinking. He said, I knew if they caught me, I'd be fired. But I'm making a lot of money. Much more probably than I could make anywhere else. And so he said, I thought, I need to build up a nest egg. And he said, a few years before this, they caught the treasurer of the company stealing money. He'd stolen about $3 million. But he knew that they were doing price fixing and, and some other things that were improper. And so in order to keep him quiet, they fired him, but they let him keep the money that he stole. And so in Mark's mind, he said, aha, now I know how this works. If they catch you stealing, they're afraid to prosecute you. They don't want to go after you because they don't want you to reveal the things that you know, the skeletons in the closet. So they'll fire you, but they'll let you keep the money that you've stolen. And so that was what was in his mind. And so that's the reason he started stealing, because he thought, oh, if they fire me, the worst, or if they catch me, the worst that will happen is I get fired, but I still get, get, get to keep the money. But I, I told him, I said, well, Mark, there was a big difference between that case and yours. I said, they were letting keep the money, keeping quiet. You were already cooperating with the, the FBI. And he said, well, I didn't really think this all the way through. But it certainly did hit home to me about how people take their their cues from management. And it's like, well, if they're engaged in illegal activity, I guess it's not a big deal if I do it either because they're they're making all this uh, illegal income. I might as well get some of it too. And then the other thing is how employees look to see how do you handle uh, cases of fraud? If you If you're not strict and you don't prosecute and you just want to fire them and get them out of the way – then people see that, and, and I think that increases your, your risk of fraud if you if you don't take a hard line on it. So, John, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but this has been a fascinating exploration of, of you're absolutely all right, one of the most well-known fraudsters and whistleblowers uh, literally over the past 25 years, Mark Whitaker. Um, I'm looking forward to tomorrow where we take up the story of Andrea ba- Baxendale. Thank you for uh, taking the time to visit with me today. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Hope you've enjoyed this five-part exploration of fraudsters and the lessons learned for the compliance professional and the fraud examiner. If you'd like more information on the ACFE, check out their website, www.acfe.org. It's a great organization. You can certainly get a lot out of it. They're most helpful for the fraud examiner, for the compliance professional, or for the business profession. This 
five-part series on fraudsters with John Gill has been a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.